Hey folks, welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Sergeant Barrett. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we will be interviewing teammates from around the base and learning about them and their keys to success. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Refuel Team Fairchild. Today, we are sitting down with Colonel O'Connor, the maintenance group commander. Sir, how are you doing? Doing great. Everything's going great. It's a busy week as always. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, I appreciate you sitting down with me. I know you're probably a very busy person, and so we definitely appreciate you sitting down and, and uh, talking to the Team Fairchild for about an hour or so. What we like to do is start off with uh, you telling everyone your story. So um, how did you get to, to where you are today? Well, uh, so I actually had a really weird path through life. Um, so you know, I started the Air Force Academy um, Went through five years there because, like anything else, you know, go to a four-year institution, takes five years to go through. Uh, did a year of prep school there right before I went in because uh, maybe my grades weren't great enough to get in the first time. Um, after I graduated, I, I ironically was uh, in the contracting career field for the first eight and a half years of my career. Kind of did that for a while. Was getting kind of was getting a, a little bit disenchanted and wasn't really what I wanted it to be. And so at about the five-year point, I actually had done was looking to get out. So I. Had done taps. I had a headhunter kind of working some jobs for me, bought some suits, that type deal. And then I went to work for a colonel who was a maintainer by trade, but was working in the program office at Hanscom Air Force Base. And between him and another colonel that was a program director that I ran with in a running group, they kind of worked on me for a year and convinced me to, to hang around. And so my boss at the time said, hey, what if I got you an assignment in maintenance, something different, because I know you're not kind of not really digging where your career is going to go in contracting at that time. And so I said, sure, you know, what's two more years? My commitment was over. It was just going to be a PCS. I could do another PCS. My mm -hmm. wife and I at the time didn't have any kids, so it seemed like a good deal. So I PCS'd, and ironically, I came back here. So this was my first assignment in contracting. I came back here as a maintenance officer for my first assignment, and it seemed like every time I said I wanted to go to McCord, they sent me to Fairchild. <laughs> So I came back here. I did two years, uh, three years here actually as a maintainer and then was able to, through persistence and some uh, good leadership, get record uh, into maintenance. And so from there, I stayed in the maintenance career field as my primary, primary AFSC and I was able to go to command right after I left here. And then from there it was command. I went to school. I then went to back to command. I went to STRATCOM staff. And had a really good opportunity to sit and be work both in the, the nuclear guy, so maintenance guy in a nuclear world, right? Not mm. the one maintenance slot in the whole place. And I answered one maintenance question for the two years I was there. Right? I learned a lot about just how to interact with joint services and all the things that go into really our nuclear mission. And then from there, went to Pope Air Force Base and was a deputy in a Army installation right after Pope became an Army installation. And again, got another kind of dose of the airlift side of the house and also working with the Army and their day-to-day -day requirements. And then got promoted to colonel, uh, went to the AOR for a year as a group commander. And then since then, I've done uh, – this is my third group command. So I did a group command at Kirtland Air Force Base wow. with special force, with the uh, special ops wing there. And then I went to Oklahoma City and was had the opportunity to be the vice commander at the depot. And so spent two years – learning about the massive amount of work that goes into managing and keeping flying a lot of our really old aircraft. Mm -hmm. And the inventory that we have, we had the 135, the B-52, and the B-1. 
with some other stuff. And so learn the wholesale side of sustainment along with being able to work with 10,000 civilians, right? So I had the opportunity there to kind of really under, step out of my comfort zone and learn to work one-on-one -on -one with the civilian workforce, half of our Air Force, which was pretty interesting. And then uh, got asked what I wanted to kind of do. And so I'm a little long in the tooth for Colonel be just because I've been hanging around. And so I said, hey, I'd really like to go back to Fairchild as a group commander because I felt like I owed – it was personal for me. I mean, I started my career here. I learned maintenance here, and I thought – I wanted to go back and kind of give something back at a higher level and make a difference for the airmen that kind of helped me cut my teeth in the maintenance when I came in the career field. Just out of curiosity, then, so when you went from contracting up here to maintenance, you were not actually a AFSC uh, holding maintainer, maintenance officer then at that point? No. So at that point, what it was supposed to be was a career broadening opportunity. Okay. And so I went to basic, you know, the basic tech school like everybody else and and it was kind of going to be one of those things where I was going to do three years in the career field or two years in the career field and then... The idea was they're going to kick me back, and about a year and a half into that, I, I I said, you know, I really wish I would have done this from the start. I really like maintenance, mm -hmm. and so the the funny story goes, my leadership had been calling on some level to, uh, down to AFPC every month or every two months, kind of asking where I was, and the answer they always got was, hey, the maintenance, uh, the excuse me, the contracting community will not let you out. They said they they won't release you, and so can't really take you into maintenance full-time unless you get released from contracting. So I'd heard that probably for about little, almost a year, maybe a little less. And so here I am, I'm in Saudi Arabia at Prince Sultan Air Base in the middle of OIF uh, as a deployed OIC for the 135 AMU there, aircraft maintenance unit there. And I said, you know what? I was working nights, it's days in the United States. I said, let me call AFPC and the contracting directorate and let me talk to them and see what the deal is. Mm -hmm. I just got my line number for major. I had done the homework to see that contracting at the time was 65 to 70% manned and maintenance was 45% manned in majors. So I thought, hey, there might be an in there to say, hey, let them go, right? You're over manned, one's undermanned, that mm -hmm. type thing. So I called the directorate down at AFPC at Randolph and lo and behold, who picks the phone up on the other end, but a friend of mine who I'd sat in a cubicle next to at Hanscom Air Force Base. And so I said to him, hey, Jason, I want to become a maintainer. I want out of the contracting career field. I just got my line number, as did he. What do you think? And he did some quick banging on the, the keys of his typewriter, you know, his computer desk, and said, yeah, we could totally do that. That shouldn't be a problem. Oh, wow. I said, awesome. Can you do me a favor? And you walk down the hallway to the maintenance guys who keep saying no because you are the one who won't let me out and tell them that you'll go ahead and release me. Jason, and I said, call me back. I said, but I'm going on shift in about 45, 50 minutes. So here's the number of my AMU if you can't get a hold of me here. My yeah. Went down to work. Jason called me an hour later said, done, you're a maintainer now. And that's kind of how it happened, right? Wow, that's pretty neat. Um, so, so I always tell folks that story when they ask about, you know, getting things, wants and needs in the Air Force because the only the only one who cares the most about your career is you. Mm -hmm. and, and your supervisors and your commanders and all those people care too. But, man, nobody cares more about your career than you do. And if you want something bad enough, if you take no for the first time, we're, we're bureaucratic organizational hierarchy organization. So knows an easy button that a lot of people hit. Mm. But if you're passionate about what you want to do and you care about what you want to do and you really want to do it, you can, if you're persistent enough, keep asking the question until you find the last no. Because somewhere between that no, that first no, and that last no, there may be a yes. Right, right. And so that's what I found was yes. I found my friend Jason sitting there in the seat <laughs> who was able to walk down the hall and make it happen. So. Wow, that's interesting. That's awesome. 
so another question I have because I, I, you know, I, I feel bad about this. I've been in the Air Force 17 years, which is not a whole lot compared to some people, but it's a little stretch. And uh, I don't know much about the maintenance world. Do officers kind of get vectored towards certain aircraft like the enlisted folks do, or can you just basically go anywhere and be a maintenance officer? So uh, yes and no. Okay. So when you're a young junior officer, lieutenant uh, type coming basically first time in, you have about and there's not a formula, right, but this is kind of historical, you probably get about two to maybe three assignments where you can do exactly what you asked previously, which is kind of move around to all a bunch of different aircrafts, right? Mm -hmm. So the maintenance community as a whole doesn't want to necessarily pigeonhole you into one aircraft at the start. So for me, when I came in, because I was a mid-level captain, early major, right, I got into heavies and I got kind of stuck there just because of where I was in my career. But a lot of the lieutenants who work for me coming right out of whatever commissioning program they are, they could come to the 135s and then from here go to a fighter unit. And then from there probably get one other assignment, whether it be a different type of heavy aircraft or a different type of fighter aircraft or maybe even bombers or special ops. And at that point, probably about mid-level captain, the Air Force and the individual, for the most part, picks a place where they're going to be. And it usually happens around the time they're either a operations officer or a commander, mm -hmm. and that's when they kind of pigeonhole you, if you want to use that word, into an into a matchcom, okay. and then from a matchcom, maybe even into a certain weapon system or weapon system. So I'm predominantly a heavy guy, 130, KC 135 by large large time. I have some I have some C17 experience. I have some special ops in terms of as a group commander with CV22s and the special ops version of the 130. Mm -hmm. um, so if you ask me who I am, I tell you I'm a 130, KC 130 guy by trade, right? If you go back and talk to, you know, your 19-year-old self, what's the, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? I know that's a broad question. Or, you know, let's say uh, when you your first first day on the job, first day in the Air Force, you're out of the academy, sure. you've commissioned, you're, yeah. you walk into the, your, your, your squadron, your lieutenant. What was, what's one thing you'd pull, pull yourself aside and give yourself some advice? Yeah, so... So I am inherently a really competitive person, uh, and, which is good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. So competitiveness is great because it drives you to do stuff, and and you're and you're the person that people give tasks to because they know they're going to get done, and you want to get it done the right way, right? Because you're competitive, but it's also bad. So if I were to go back and tell me when I was from lieutenant to probably early major ish, um, I would tell you. Uh, probably to kind of couch that competitiveness and, and build more teams. And so for me, a lot of cases, when I came to a unit, the first thing I did was I wanted to make sure that I was I was as, as successful as I could be personally in what I was doing. And that's great. But what that does sometimes is it comes at a cost, right? And so instead of listening, kind of understanding, you make assumptions and you just try to figure out a way to get your job done, get it done as quickly as you can and get to the next task. And you get to, and you miss stuff. You miss a lot of the people interaction. So I would tell you the first half of my career, I was never really a people person. For me, it was all about the mission. Okay. And yes, I took care of the people that worked for me, but if it, but I was more mission-oriented probably uh, than I was people-oriented. And so the mission always came first. And I didn't understand because I didn't have kids at the time, all these things that go along with the people half of it. But when I got to be a little bit older and they became a commander, I realized that the competitive thing is great, but you have to balance that with everything else. And so you want to be your organization to be number one or your organization to be the best or your section to be the best or the airman that works for you to be the best. That's great, but that's that's a momentary thing. Mm -hmm. You got to build kind of the relationships across the board, right. up and down. Um, listen, 
be a little bit more patient. I'm inherently an impatient person. That mm-hmm. I think goes back to me being super competitive, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, so taking a step back and really listening to what's going on and kind of understanding the the world around you and why people are doing things. And what I've tried to what I tell my lieutenants now is become a people watcher. Like try to understand the people around you and the people who work for you, mm-hmm. and not just see them as um, that thing. And this might sound a little uh, clinical, but that thing, that instrument that you're using to get whatever task you have been asked to do. Right. But find out where they come from. Find out what talents they bring to the table, what they don't bring to the table, and then how to utilize them in a way that's both satisfying for them mm-hmm. as well as the thing you all as a group are trying to get done. And so I really make it a point now, probably from just experience, right? As we get older, we get more experience. Of asking, looking at a person and go, okay, I need to take care of that person, but I also need to use their talents to get whatever I'm being asked to do. And how do I figure out how to meld those two together? Right. And then when I'm when I'm going to give some sort of feedback or advice, how am I going to do it in a way that is receptive to the person that's giving it for me? Instead of you know one hammer fits all, sometimes you got to have to diversify your toolbox because mm-hmm. uh, we as an Air Force have grown. When I came in. Yelling and screaming was a normal thing. Mm-hmm. And and you got more feedback from one-way conversations than anything else. That doesn't work in today's world. Right. And so you have to diversify your toolbox. How do you get to that same spot that you would, would have before with maybe a hammer? How do you get forth with that with just talking? Right. So That is good advice. And it was funny you bring that up. I was just talking about that in a class I was teaching today about um, kind of the differences even when I came in about – you know, asking questions of why it wasn't really a thing that you would do as an airman. Yeah. And now it, it's a big thing. I, I kind of like the way the direction it's going to be. Yeah. And the why thing, I'm a big why person too, right? Mm-hmm. But never asked why a lot because you weren't really allowed. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was, t- I was talking to some Aaron about that today and they were all shocked. They uh, It was over a Zoom thing and a bunch of them were like, why, really? And I said, yeah, if you ask why, you we're basically told, don't worry about why, go go there and, and, and do your job. But we've We've shifted our mindset, I think, as an Air Force culture. I, I think it's a good thing. I, I agree. It's a good thing, and I think there's a time and place for the, hey, got to get it done right now, timing, <laughs> whatever. But we don't do a very good job as a, on a lot of cases is follow up with the why, right? Right. Because if we follow up with the why, then the individual knows what it was they did, and they can appreciate why they did it. They can appreciate the importance of it. And then when the next time happens, they'll be more understanding of jumping right and getting after it than going, hey, you know, it's the second time you've asked me to do this. I still can't figure out why. Right. But it goes back to what you were saying about building those relationships with those people so they trust that you will come back and tell them why and then they're more apt to just go do what you ask. And then, so yeah, it's funny you bring that up. We were just teaching that this morning. So interesting. Um, one, another question I'd like to ask you is uh, a lot of people listening, of course, you know, we're all around the Air Force and we know what maintenance does, but there's probably a lot of things that, that maintenance does that we don't know about. So what is one thing uh, you would like to let the listeners know about the maintenance group that maybe you don't think that they would know? Wow. I know um, that's a, another broad question. <laughs> no, that's a really, that's a hard question. So, I mean, yeah, and it's inherent core, right, where you're, where you're, the folks who work in the maintenance group both are on the front side fixing aircraft launching every day. There's mm-hmm. a massive amount of work that goes on behind that too. Mm-hmm. So the easy one, the front side, which everybody sees is the, is the highly trained technician standing at an aircraft with an air crew coming up and launching that aircraft or catching that aircraft or servicing that aircraft for having to ready to go to the, the next side. That's mm-hmm. the one that everybody sees in all the, every video commercial, whatever that is. Right. And that, mm-hmm. and that is a big part of what we do, but there's a lot that goes on behind those both in a, uh, somewhat support agency of, of the big inspections and the, and the small shops that do a lot of the fabricating and, and what I could call like we could, 
you could do a you could do a TV show in our group, and you would see exactly what you would see in a lot of the TV shows you see from custom cars. Mm-hmm. So we have a 1950s era aircraft sitting on that ramp mm-hmm. that needs a lot of hands-on love. It needs a lot of fabricating, and it needs a lot of hydraulic work and line work and all these things for that to both launch it on the front end and then keep it flying on the back end. But even behind that is I have a group of folks in this group that have no maintenance affiliation in terms of technical skills at all. They do things like scheduling and making sure that every, and that really is the first step in any maintenance organization is that scheduling piece. Mm-hmm. If that scheduling piece on how we're going to fly, when we're going to fly, when we're going to fix what people, if that's not done, then everything else is kind of just falls apart. Yeah. And then on top of that is I have my own analysis division full of people, super smart mathematicians that crunch numbers for me. So I have the ability to look at decision-making from a data-driven perspective that most people don't realize is really what drives a lot of the decisions in the maintenance group across the maintenance career field, at least at my level, is we sit down and we look at numbers and how are we doing in terms of what our launches are and what they should be and how they're affected by supply and physical task of doing maintenance and then the decisions that we make and all that can be crunched in our database system by a group of airmen, mm-hmm. right, that are doing this at a high level that a lot of corporations spend lots and lots of money. And they're older, older people. We're talking 18 to 25-year-olds doing this really intense work wow. that when they give that information to the front side, they're able to figure out, hey, instead of doing all of this, I really need to concentrate on this one thing. And if I can fix these few things, I may be able to lower the amount of work that I'm doing over a period of time. Part of that, no one understands or knows. They just look at the guy on the gal on the flight line who is super important. And, and, but it's a team effort. Mm-hmm. It's team effort from what we call office, you know, an office environment to the back shop environment, fixing individual parts or individual systems mm-hmm. to the front side that launches that sortie that does whatever that air crew is going to do for the Air Force. Wow. I didn't know that. I, I, I was, myself thought it was, um, you know, the, the actual technicians and then you had a small group of, of folks that just helped the group run or the squadrons run do, you know, but I did not know all that went into it. That's very interesting. So good. I'm glad I asked that question. Um, the next question I want to ask you is, um, everyone's got their own definition of this, um, and I don't think there's a wrong one, but it just depends on what's, what's important to you. So how do you define success? When you ask that question, you mean success personally or success in the Air Force in general? Let's go with the Air Force first. So I would probably tell you success for me, I, I see my own personal success and the success of the organization I've been in on the success of the airmen that are in it. When you're getting placed in charge of a command or, or a flight or whatever that is, we have folks that work for you. The success in that in that area where you work is really the success where you are enabling the people that are you're in charge of or you're tasked to look for look feed and care for, their success is your success. So if you're getting your folks recognized, they're getting promoted, they're getting the training they need, they're they're helping push that mission set forward mm-hmm. for whatever that mission set is. And honestly, I see that both as an organizational success and a personal success. And I've always made it a point when I talk to people, when I, we have DV visits, and I've done this ever since I was a lieutenant, I don't necessarily talk too much. What I usually do is tag along behind everybody, and I let my airmen mm-hmm. drag that person, whoever that may be, through and show them all the great stuff that they do. Because I can talk, and it's interesting, but really what we're talking about is I haven't had an original thought in my head since I was a lieutenant, right? <laughs> I really honestly live off of the the successes of the people under me. Now I enable that and facilitate and give the tools and everything, but they're the ones in their smart, crafty, t- 
technically sound training that mm-hmm. does all the heavy lifting. And so the biggest thing you can tell anybody success is, is give them the opportunity to do their job, give them the tools, the times and the technique to do it, and then get out of the way. Mm-hmm. If you get out of the way, success is easy. Why? Because they'll carry you to the finish line because that's what our airmen do in the Air Force. Right. And so the worst thing you can do is try to insert yourself in places where you're probably not going to add any value to it. Mm-hmm. And then so when we talk success, that then becomes a very hard thing to achieve because they're not doing it on their own. They'll get it done on their own if they're empowered to do it. They realize and know what it is they need to do, commander's intent, and then they give them everything in order to do it. Right. And I think really for me, across my career, when I've been in successful organizations, that's exactly what leadership does. It sets the tone, it sets the environment, and then it allows the organization as a whole to drive everything towards where they're going. So would you tack on anything to personal success, how you define personal success? For anybody, the first thing that anybody has to do is become really good at their job. Mm-hmm. So if they're not really good at the job, I call it street cred, right? It's hard for you to go through your life in the Air Force and anything, actually, any job anywhere. Then you have to be in the military if you don't understand and know and are good at your job. Because that gives you the instantaneous credibility. So when you come in, we all come in with the same amount of expectations and everything else from all over the place in the United States and the world. The thing that's going to propel you forward is just that. How well do you know your job? How well can you do your job? How well can the folks above you trust you to do your job? Mm-hmm. That's the in the first, the five-meter target success. And then it's learning how to broaden yourself out from that. Right. So if you're a really good, whatever your AFSC is, doesn't matter, you name it. That'll take you to a point in your career solely just on that. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that's how the Air Force is pretty much rigged. And then even in the in the subcultures of our AFSCs that you could potentially go a little bit farther. But at some point, your, your AFSC knowledge and your technical knowledge is only going to take you too far. At a point, probably for if you were enlisted, I would tell you it's probably around staff tech. If you're an officer, it's probably around captain, maybe first lieutenant. Mm-hmm. You need to start to broaden yourself out into things that you're uncomfortable with. Right. And so I've always, I never really understood this until I heard a general officer one time say this, but, but an officer could have actually is a takeaway, but you got to learn something new every day, mm-hmm. right? So if you're not learning something new every day, either about yourself, your organization, the people who work for you, whatever that is, then you're not growing. If you don't grow, then you're not going to get any better. And a growing needs to make you uncomfortable. So it can't be growing in things you're super good at. It mm-hmm. needs to be growing in things that you're uncomfortable with. So if you don't like to get up and stand in front of a group of people and talk, we're going to ask you to do that someday. Right. If you can't do it, then you're not going to be an effective communicator to your airmen or to your organization. So you got to kind of force yourself out there. I, I had a commander that when I was in contracting that made all of us take Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. Right? And I did not want to do that. And it's not because I didn't like to get up in front of people. I just thought I was a pretty good public speaker. And I realized very quickly that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you that eight weeks or six weeks or six months, whatever it was, was tremendous in terms of understanding the nuances of really driving across a point, um, how to better message what you're trying to do. And it helped me tremendously as I got on later on in my life and became commander and I'd stand up in front of groups of people and give speeches and all those other things and do interviews just like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not growing, you're not going to succeed. And then at some point you need to read. So your Air Force experience is going to get you to a point. Your toolbox will be p- pretty deep. Or it might just be pretty wide. But at some point, you run out of the opportunities. But by reading, great readers normally are great leaders. Mm-hmm. Then you gotta you got to have an ability to learn from other people's mistakes, experiences, 
and I read all sorts of different stuff. I'm an avid reader. I read military stuff. I read leadership stuff. I read just weird in-between stuff because somewhere in there, you're going to take a nugget away mm-hmm. and maybe apply. You may have run into an airman that you read something in the book. They start talking to you. And now you have commonality. Right. Now you can have a conversation. Now you can actually start to exchange something and learn something about each other. All because not where you grew up, not where you, whatever it is, it's because you got a piece of nugget that is really interesting to this person. You can say, hey, I read that. And you start talking about it. And so I've, I've, I figured out personal success is really that. And then the other thing is, and I wasn't big on this as the early age of my career, but really getting a network and not networking for the point of who you know. It's networking for the point of who you know that can help you help your airmen. Right. So I always tell folks when they go to ALS or they go to SOS or they go to whatever it is, you're going to go and you may not want to go. And we all know that some folks just don't want to go. Yep. The one thing you could take away from any of those places you go, if you don't want to do anything else, is you now have a friend that's in finance mm-hmm. or a contact, the JAG, CE. You name the you name the squadron or job agency. And now when that airman comes to you and they're having a financial problem or a housing problem or whatever problem, you have somebody that can, you in the squadron, you can pick the phone up and call and say, hey, point me in the right direction because I have this airman that needs some help and I want to take care of them because they're my airman. I just don't know who to talk to. And they drive you in the right direction. Yeah. And now you're problem solving for your airmen. You're, again, expanding your understanding of the base. Because let's all be honest, not everybody on the base understands what everybody does. Right. Right. But we under- now we start to understand the isms that come with everybody's career field and mm-hmm. squadron and all these things. We better appreciate what we all do mm-hmm. versus the secular understanding of this is what my AFSC does. And outside of that, it doesn't matter because I just think my AFSC. Right. So. So that actually brings me to another question is, uh, said you're an avid reader. So what are, um, if you could just give us three books that you think that everyone should read or that, sure. that you would pass out to someone who's having some issues or that you just pass out to people. What would so, so I pass out one book is called thanks for the feedback. Mm-hmm. And so it's a book about, uh, how, when, how to give feedback and then how people receive feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one called, uh, not everyone gets a trophy. So again, when, again, I'm an old guy, right? Mm-hmm. So where I grew up, it was first, second, and third, and after that, kind of everybody was, um, well, you just got their first, second, and third. Yeah. We can have we can have tons of conversations about whether or not we all agree with participatory, participatory awards or whatever it is. I get that, but it, what the book really drives to is the generation in which we're talking about. So I read it because I wanted to understand, um, the people that just were different from me and raised in a different generation from mm-hmm. me. And it was a fantastic book about understanding just that the generational differences and what drove those. It probably didn't change any opinions I had in terms of um, what I thought I knew, but it gave me a better understanding of how to react and interact with people that brought up in the internet era. Like I was in the back end of the internet age, right? My first computer was two, three and a half inch floppy disk, right? (laughs) Um, So I grew up in the back end of that, but today everybody can find out truth or or not truth based on the phone in their pocket. Mm Whereas we're, when I grew up, you either wasn't Encyclopedia Botanica or some really worldly relative you had, yeah. you kind of took everything for face value. Yeah. And so understanding where their perspective is and why they feel the way they do and they think the way they do is super helpful when I go stand and talk to a bunch of airmen who are technically about, man, like 30 years younger than me, right? Mm. There's a, that's a huge gap. And I'm not saying it makes me an expert, but at least it makes me appreciate it better. Right. Um, and then, you know, the last one, I would tell you I, it's more of a subject matter. I love. I really appreciate autobiographies. 
uh, more than anything. And I do that because it's it, good, well-written ones because it talks about the human part of whatever the struggle is. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a military one, whether it's a sports one, whether it's I read one, Nikki Six from Martley Crew, right? His crazy life in an autobiography, but it was interesting, the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And so while it was entertaining, because that's when I grew up, the era I grew up, I actually like Martley Crew when I grew up. <laughs> um, I still do. But it was entertaining to kind of see what that was like and how he went through and the things that went through his life and the way he deals with it to get where he is today, which is somewhat recovered from all the crazy stuff that he did back in the 80s and early 90s. Right. right. So I'm a big autobiography reader, and I, and I recommend folks when they want to learn about a certain thing, that's probably the way I would go to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then reading it about somebody who's writing it based on some theory. Because the theory is interesting, but you need to tie the two together with somebody who's actually walked those grounds. Gotcha. And then you... Someone like Simon Sinek, who's doing it from the theoretical research area. When you can connect those two, you get a better understanding of whatever it is you're trying to listen to and read to. I haven't heard the Motley Crue one yet. Yeah, it's a good book, man. <laughs> yeah, check that out. I do like reading autobiographies. You learn stuff about people or maybe where they came from. And, um, you know, I think I, I think it's interesting for sure. So, um, so is there anything that you are, are immersing yourself in or learning now? Um, so I wouldn't say so much. Uh, so... I wouldn't say so much immersing myself in learning new. What I'm on the journey now in the group. So uh, is we're on a journey now in the group. We're trying to institute uh, as the air for the Air Force actually as a pilot organization's idea of how do we do maintenance better in today's world, right? With uh, not a lot of money, lots of requirements, and really really old aircraft that are going to fly till 2045, 2050. So how do we sustain that? And, and so, and how do we do it with a workforce that is uh, growing in some aspects, but finite in some aspects mm-hmm. too? And so, one of the things that I am doing in the group, immersing myself with on any given day, is this thing called theory of constraints, and how do we utilize that? In with it's a it's a format, it's a management methodology, utilizing continuous process improvement. And how do we how do we better utilize our constraints that we face every day in our job? Mm-hmm. For me, on a strategic level in the group, it's people. Like I have 1,100 people, which isn't a lot when you look at 63 aircraft and all the work that goes into a 1950s era aircraft, right? And so on any given day, my constraint is just what I just said. It's the human being, mm-hmm. a trained human being. And so what we're, what I've been really immersed in over the last two years, going into my third year here, is laying down the groundwork for making that part of our culture. Moving us away from what used to be a very human-dominated, I had lots of manpower, I could just push that big rock up the hill with more and more manpower. Right. And getting after, how do I better utilize my airman? How do I make it so that my airman comes to work every day, works eight hours in a nine-hour shift because we want to give them lunch? We don't do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes because of necessity, sometimes because we may not think of it, we may mismanage it a little because of things going on, chaos of the flight line. Mm-hmm. But how do I make sure for eight hours that we to the utmost of our ability, utilize them the most efficient way so that we can put them at their job at the point of impact, give them the tools, the time, and the technique to do it, and then that trained airman makes it happen. Not always, sounds really easy to be like, well, it's got to be easy, 1,100 people, but mm-hmm. on any given day, I have, I, have, I have 100 and change deployed, mm-hmm. and then I have all these other requirements that AMC levels, levies on us now that we're the largest tanker wing, largest tanker maintenance group, and the Air Force. And, and so that on any given day, I don't have all those people. And so how do I utilize the ones I do have? How do I get my airmen, 36% of my group 
is three level and is a brand new three level. Mm-hmm. How do I get them trained faster? And not trained faster for the sake of being trained, but like proficient. Right. And in a in a modern, how do I bring modern training techniques to a to a career field that has been using a lot of old ways of doing business? We are very visual learners. And then there's the hands-on learners. And how yeah. do I meld those? We have a we have an initiative of trying to get holographic. We've got a design team coming in that we've got through an Air Force program that are going to help us build 3D modeling training. So I can put oh, VR wow. goggles on and actually, in some sort of medium, be able to touch what you think you are, right? Yeah. And and do maintenance training on it. Wow. Um, so how do you do? How do you bring that easy stuff that everybody has access to in their computer at home? How do I bring that to the flight line? Uh-huh. How do I get rid of paper? And utilize tablets, or we're using uh, IFR imagery, heat, heat imagery, mm-hmm. to figure out where leaks are. Wow. So whereas before we would follow a leak based on breaking into the aircraft and trying to figure out what it is, I can take a camera now that looks like a 35 inch, 30 millimeter camera, mm-hmm. and run it along, and I can see, hey, I should see heat all the way here, or cold all the way to here. Oh, I see heat, that's a leak, or I see cold. That's a leak. Wow. And now I go right to the point of impact. So what would have taken me eight hours could now take me minutes. Wow. So so we're really trying to figure out in this group how do we how do we do all that and still continue to turn aircraft out for the operators, for the Air Force and everything else. Wow. Um, has the group pushed anything out that's maybe gone Air Force wide or the, the command said, hey, that's a great idea, and then other bases started using it as well? So, um, so yes, so the stuff that we're doing now in terms of like our ISO doc and all the theory constraints I was mm-hmm. talking about, we're starting to push that out to the Air Force. Um, so we were the pilot organization that got pushed then to Ellsworth. So um, Global Strike picked them as their, their first base. Um, their ACC's now got Shaw doing the same thing. But everything, but we're kind of like the mother hub, so we're doing all the experimental stuff on gotcha. R&D, I like to say. So we break the glass, we make the mistakes, we try to figure out how to make it better, and then that gets passed on to uh, some of the other bases. Myself and my SME that does that helps me with this, we've been traveling all over the aircraft, Air Force in different ways, teaching, mm-hmm. sometimes advising, for lack of better words. Right. And so we're trying to push that out because we see the goodness in um, – it, the Air Force has seen the goodness in trying to make this a normal part of everyday's everyday world, and it's hard, right? We're trying to change, trying to change mindsets mm-hmm. and culture, which isn't easy. No, no. And so we spent a lot of time just talking about that. So you guys are, are like the, the guinea pigs, really. Then. Yep. So I, I bet you must have some folks that really enjoy that kind of like uh, mad scientist work. I guess I'll call it to to get in there and make all that happen. That must be really exciting for some for some of the folks. So, and so you know it's funny, you have you have the group of folks, you talk about, you know, leadership and, and how change is hard, right? So you have a group of folks who really want to get after it and they dig it and they're really digging into it and trying to figure out how to apply it where they work. Mm-hmm. And then like anything else, you have those folks that don't want to do it and it's not because they're necessarily want to do things a bad way, but I mean change is hard. Mm-hmm. Like we're and I and I'm I'm empathetic to all the folks in the group where we've gone in and really turned their normal world upside down and we've caused them to have to do a little bit more of things that don't have value added that you can see right away. And it's mm-hmm. not until you, you get into it. And over time, we've been in eight months now, we've been trying to get one thing trying to accomplish in here. And it's, we've had our ups and downs because people move and they want to have ideas. And then we kind of move back and we take forward. And like anything, it's a journey. Yeah. And it's not a sprint. And so everybody has to be patient and open-minded. And so those are skills that in some cases we don't really grow on a lot of cases. But I think in the group, we're starting to see some of the benefits mm-hmm. and how do you get those wins and then how do you multiply those wins so that it's in a larger organization like I am? How do you get it so that the airman understands why they're doing it? 
as well as that master sergeant or whoever that we're asking to change the way they were doing business, say, six months ago. Right. Um, and so that's the challenge for me every day and the challenge for my leadership teams is is getting everybody on board so it's not a me, Colonel Connor thing because I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to rotate at some point next summer. But I don't want it to be a me thing. I want it to be part of the organization so that when I leave and whoever sits in this office, it's, hey, why are you doing that? And it's not, this is what the last guy told us to do necessarily. It's, hey, we were asked to do this. We figured it out. And now it's, it's a part of what we do, and it makes mm-hmm. our job better, faster, stronger. And so we have a thing in the group now. We kind of our brand is quality, or quality maintenance, safety is our number one priority, and in a focused manner. So we put the right airmen at the right time with the right training to do the right job to produce combat power for the Air Force. Right? That's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, sir, we're, we're uh, right about at that at that mark. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and ask you this question. And I saw you writing some stuff down earlier yeah. for us. So. What are our three takeaways that you would like to leave the people listening to this podcast with? <clears throat> so the first one I already talked about, right? So be willing to learn something new every day. And don't be so stuck in your way of thinking and the way you do business that you're not open to, to change. And so, again, you know, great leaders are great readers. They learn from other people's mistakes. They try to expand their toolbox, either deep or wide, depending on where they're at in their careers. And they're willing to take those things and apply them. They might not be perfect, right? But there might be a nugget you can push in there that'll either help you be a better leader or whatever that is. Take care of the folks who work for you. So we talked about success. If you take care of the folks that work for you, they give them the opportunity to be successful. You make sure that they're they have the ability to be value added to your organization, your flight, squadron, shop, section, whatever that is on any given day. They are more apt to work as hard as they can for you every day, mm-hmm. giving you 100% even on the bad days than they are if they just come to work and, they, and they're not appreciated. Right. Just say thank you. So, I mean, just the fact that they showed up to work that day and came and did their job, they thank you at the end of the day. I, I have a thing at the end of every slideshow I do. I have a slide that just says thank you because we don't use that word enough. We do it we give them awards. We do it when we present things. Why can't we just do it any given day when they just do a good job? Mm-hmm. If we do that and the folks feel appreciated at all levels, they're going to come to work ready to work for you. Absolutely. Um, And then I think the last thing is, you know, have fun. Like, so the Air Force has been fun. Um, My wife and I have this deal that I'll get out of the Air Force when it's not fun anymore. (laughs) You know, at some point they're going to make me leave. I get that. And I'll probably leave before that anyway. But it's fun. Like, there's opportunities out there. Go back to the first question you asked me, right? I would never have gotten into maintenance if I wasn't determined enough to realize that this was something that I enjoyed mm-hmm. and that I wanted to do. I don't work. Like, I don't come to work every day. This isn't a job for me. This is fun. Yeah. Like, I like coming to work. I never dread coming to work unless it's a day where I'm just not mm-hmm. feeling it because I don't feel good, right? Mm-hmm. But every day I get up and I look at it as I'm going to come to work and I am almost guaranteed on any given day I'm going to be challenged. I'm going to probably learn something, maybe a couple of things. Even as old and as crusty as some people think I may be, right? I'm learning new stuff every day from the people who work for me mm-hmm. or the situations that I sit in or whatever that is because that's just the way this the military is. It's constantly evolving, constantly changing. If you look at, if you try to make it fun, both for yourself and the folks around you, take care of those folks, right? And you want to learn something new every day. The Air Force is a pretty cool place and they're going to give you opportunities to have even a bigger experience. Mm-hmm. Whether you stay five years or 25 years, you're going to leave with something, even if you don't think so, that you're going to be able to apply successfully that 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds, for that matter, don't have the opportunity to. I mean, think about it. In the maintenance group, we give 18-year-olds the opportunity and, the, and the, the authority and the capability to fix 
and then inherently trusted when an air crew rolls up to the aircraft to say, sir, ma'am, aircraft's ready to go, and they go fly. Like, mm-hmm. we have that inherent trust. We put it in an 18-year-old. What I tell my airmen is, tell me how many of your friends who are 18 are given that much responsibility anywhere, and the answer is none. Yeah. Or very few, I should say. Absolutely. And so that's what's really cool. I mean, if you think about it, and we do it every day over and over again. And yeah, there's hiccups, right? Mm-hmm. There's a learning, there's some days a learning curve. But in the majority of the time, it works. And that's what kind of makes it fun Absolutely. just to see that. Uh, well, sir, um, that, that's all I've got today. Uh, I want to say thank you for taking the time to speak Thanks to everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I also want to say thank you because you are always very quick to respond to emails and help me out with the professional development classes that we do and come in and do panels and, and teach and whatever else I'm asking people to do. Um, so I also appreciate that. And I know that when you leave the classroom, I get good feedback about your sessions. So the, oh, the, folks, the folks go and appreciate that as well. So. Um, All right, sir. Well, that's all I've got. And uh, for everyone listening, appreciate you listening, and we will see you next time. Well, that's it for this episode of the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. If you have show ideas, people you'd like to hear from, or if you'd like to be on the podcast, contact us at fafbcaa at gmail.com.